How about Jason? Jason, are you? Uh, are I'm, you uh, I'm feeling good. Liquid? Yeah, good. Yeah. Good. Well, now now I'm in a an office with Mike, so. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm over the hump at this point. Probably okay. <laughs> yeah. Welcome to Telltales, an investing podcast hosted by Hunt Lawrence, Jason Wallace, and Mike Nicoletti. Each week, we discuss topics ranging from geopolitics and macroeconomics to energy and technology. You can sign up for our newsletter at telltales.us. That's T-E-L-L-T-A-L-E-S dot U-S for additional data and content you can use to follow along. The following conversation is intended for informational purposes only. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. This episode of Telltales is brought to you by Topmark Capital. They use a blend of best practices from value investing, venture capital, and private equity, which gives them a unique perspective on market dynamics. And the results truly speak for themselves. So... If you're a qualified investor who's looking for an innovative emerging manager, visit topmarkcapital.com to learn more. And now, back to the show. We got a bunch to cover today, so I'm going to go to the last page, Exhibit C, first. You may have seen whatever news source you follow, Citibank, which has a very good commodities research department predicting $70 rent by the middle of next summer. Their argument is the US, Europe, China will all be in recession and that will curtail oil demand. They don't deny that demand is very strong now, but it is their view. From a supply point of view, the other thing they worry about and is that surplus capacity line of 4 million barrels. That is, generally oil doesn't go up the way it's gone up when you have that much surplus capacity being curtailed by OPEC with an extra million barrels a day from Saudi Arabia. Now, OPEC Plus had their meeting today, and they confirmed that they're going to stick with the current program. They're not going to add more supply. So that's good. Exhibit B is a rework on gas. Those who follow 20 pages or get it will see this page, Exhibit B, if you compare it to last week, you'll notice that gas production is higher by about a B a day. We just can't have the kind of increase in gas supply that we've had. Now, $6 gas last year obviously caused more wells to be drilled. Gas is averaging 280 this year, but people have been able to sell forward. If you go down to the futures page at the beginning of 22, you sold your 24 gas, you got 319, which is better than what it's going to average. If you sold it at the middle of 22, you got 440. So people put hedges on the middle of 22 are not working with 280. They're working for 440. Or alternatively, someone who put hedges on now for 25 is dealing with $4 because that's what the futures market is. So that contango is a bit of a problem in terms of curtailing gas production. But uh, we do think that $4 gas will happen. It's just, could it be delayed a full year? In other words, rather than be happen in 25, happen in 26, possible. Exhibit A, the House Republicans lost their speaker yesterday. It was interesting because one of the complaints from the dissidents 
and the Republican House members is that McCarthy, Kevin McCarthy, committed to trying to get the budget back to pre-COVID. I point this out every every Wednesday, but the spending away from mandatory spending and defense and interest was nine hundred and ten billion in twenty nineteen. It's now a trillion four. That's five hundred billion of increase. I think all they're talking about in in the appropriation bills is trimming that by about a hundred billion. But I mean that that's really what the battle is over. And what Mike and I talk every morning and then Mike and Jason for most of the day are concerned about is the capital markets coming unglued the way they did in the fourth quarter of 08 after Lehman went down or as they as they became unglued in March of 20 with COVID. The way they become unglued is initially generally in the bond market, especially the treasury bond market. And since we're going through quantitative tightening, so U.S. government securities are not being replaced. So the Fed balance sheet's going down by about a trillion a year from nine or whatever it got to. So it'll eventually get down to three or four is, is the goal. And as the U.S. government has to raise better part of a trillion and a half dollars, a fair amount of the of the purchases or the market is U.S. financial institutions, mostly hedge funds, are highly levered, you know, like 10, 15, 20 times, who finance themselves in the repo market, which is the overnight market. Repo market all gets settled by about the middle of the day or a little ahead of the middle of the day. And if people in the repo market become concerned, as they did before in the fall of 08 and, and March of 2000, they just don't renew. And if you have a a hedge position in government securities of 10, 15, 20 times the amount of your equity, you don't want to be forced into unwinding it because you can't renew the repo. So what you do is you bid the repo up. So in those two instances, and also another time in, in, the, in the fall of 2019, the repo rate, which is supposed to be the federal funds rate plus a quarter point or so, so it'd be around five and a quarter now or five and a half, goes to 15. Now, that really catches everyone's attention on a worldwide basis. The repo market doesn't open again until the following morning. It takes uh, half a day for the Fed to go out and fix it. And the way the Fed fixes it is it tells the people who can't refinance in the repo market to, to, to use the Fed window. May not directly, they may have to do it through a, a reporting dealer, but that's what happens. That's what happened in the fall of 08. Uh, that's what happened in, in March of 2020. What that means is that quantitative tightening is put aside. I mean, the Fed typically has two mandates. One is employment and one is inflation. But really, a third mandate that's at least as important in crisis, especially in crisis conditions, is to keep the capital market working. So people who say that the Fed funds rate will come down next year because we have a recession, we we have pretty strong economic numbers and we're probably going to have 
a strong jobs report this Friday. Suppose it's the case that a a 5% or 5.5% Fed funds rate doesn't really curtail activity. When will the Fed interest rates, Fed funds rate, the 10-year bond, which, you know, has is certainly impacted by the Fed funds rate because of this carry trade, when will interest rates come down if the economy continues to steam ahead? Definitely something to worry about for all of us as equity investors. It may be when the repo market gets into trouble because the Fed will not just come down for that day, flood the market for that day. They'll continue to watch that carefully and quantitative tightening will cease. Example of that is the Fed balance sheet, as they went into March of 20, was $4 trillion. Now that's up from like $2 trillion, which is what it was before 08. And it went up a bit in 08, but they got things settled down. And But in uh, a couple of years later, since the economy is very slow, they decided to try quantitative easing. And just to try to get the economy to grow more than 2% a year or, or to introduce some inflation because they're worried about deflation. The Fed balance sheet went from two to four and a half. Then they were taking it down quantitative easing. Then it ran into March of 20 to now or to uh, uh, the end of 22. The Fed balance sheet went from $4 trillion to $9 trillion. So that's $5 trillion. During that period of time, looking at Exhibit A, the deficit was like $7 trillion getting through COVID those three years. Five of the seven was financed by the Fed. So how worried to be about this situation? I, 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 we're working to see what Mike and Jason uh, comment on all this. But my conclusion looking at it now is not to worry because that problem in the repo market is bound to happen and the Fed won't be able to continue to be restrictive amongst that they'll have to stop quantitative tightening, not because they've beaten inflation, but just because they have to, to regulate the capital markets. And with that, Jason, I talked to Mike this morning, so he and I are kind of on the same page. So let's go to you first for any reaction to that kind of a scenario. I just worry that, you know, running that, that big a deficit now where we've crossed the line where the interest payments are bigger than the defense budget. So it doesn't seem like a very sustainable thing going forward. And I know we've talked yeah. about that topic and, and how we can get deficit spending to come down, but, and, you know, and we focused on healthcare in, in that regard, but yeah, something, something's got to give. Right. Over to you, Mike. Yeah. The, the basis trade to me is the epitome of moral hazard, right? If you know that the Fed's going to come bail everybody else out, why not leave her up a hundred or 500 times? So it's sort of a unique incentive. I mean, almost all of these things that tend to blow up, you can boil it back to a prior incentive conflict. And this is one where it's it's apparent and it's happened before. And I don't know that any solution has been implemented to prevent it. Yeah. What it means to me is that as an equity investor, even though it's very alarming, and Jason's right, but because the ultimate result will be inflation more than 2%, you really can't just sell all your equities and go to cash because you're getting paid 5% on the cash. You just can't do that because 
whatever the dollar's worth today, it's going to be worth, you know, 80 cents or 70 cents or something in 10 years. The only way to protect yourself that I can think of is to own company, own companies, shares in companies that generate more cash than they use and have good balance sheets. Now, we would rather have, again, going to page one, we would rather have companies that can grow their free cash flow by double-digit amounts. And Apple's a great company. Alphabet's a great company. Tesla's a great company. But sitting here looking at them now, for various reasons, that free cash flow at Apple of $90 billion and free cash flow at Alphabet of 50 say, and free cash flow of Tesla of $8 billion, there's a fair chance in each one of those cases that that free cash flow will flatline rather than double. And I think if we turn the page and we look at the software companies, we do have a, a rationale for Microsoft doing much better. But, you know, you could get some flatlining there. You turn the page and we look at NVIDIA versus AMD and Intel and Taiwan Semiconductor and ASML. NVIDIA is kind of a special case because of GPUs being so necessary to, to run large language models. But still, you know, a huge, huge valuation. So switching back to page one and kind of covering current events, since we, I think we spent enough time on the macro. Uh, and, and with Mike, with raspy voice, go to Jason on one of the things that's going on now is a FTC trial of, of Alphabet or Google. And one of the things that's been publicized is how much money Google sends to Apple every year for being the default setting for search. I forget exactly what the number is, but several billion dollars. Jason, if, if the result of this, some kind of consent agreement or something, was Alphabet was agreed to not do that anymore, so that so that um, so that it, it, you know you 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 either Apple would have their own search, or maybe they'd have an AI product that they'd say does a better job than search. But that several billion dollars probably come right off their free cash flow. How how do you think they, the two of these entities fare? with a consent agreement like that, uh, first Apple and then Google. Yeah, I mean, you're right that, uh, what is, is it 10 or 15 billion? Do you remember the exact number, Mike? Oh, Mike, I, I, have the number. Yeah, I, all I know is that Satya Nadella in the hearing said that he would be willing to spend $15 billion a year and have zero economics out of it if he were able to get that for Bing. Right. So let's right. let's just say it's fifteen. Right. Pre previous uh, estimates put it at ten, but yeah, so somewhere between ten and fifteen. Yeah. And you're right; it'll come right off the the free cash flow, and it's not good for Apple. <laughs> and and I think ultimately they're gonna have Google as the search. I mean, is there really a competitor? He says he'd like to have Bing there. Maybe, maybe they could shoehorn it in. But I mean, nothing nothing compares to Google. That's why that's why it's. 95% market share or whatever. If, if I'm Apple, I'm looking at one of two ways to settle this. One, I decide to hold an auction every year. And you can structure auctions to make sure you get the right amount of money. You think they could still capture that? Yeah. yeah, yeah, totally. I think so. And then two, 
we're we're witnessing the beginning of a huge shift in technology, this LLM thing, and I think that <clears throat> this could be an opportunity for Apple. And we haven't seen much from Apple when it comes to what they're doing on the AI front. They're either way behind or just being hugely secretive. But it would be a an opportunity to essentially oust Google from the iPhone. And they're probably thinking very seriously about whether or not they want to do that. Do you think, Jason, you could develop a large language model that would provide the same service that Google Search does? As fast as the, the technology is advancing, I, I think it's, it's possible. It's just a, it's almost a different problem, you know, searching the web for, you want to find the needles in the haystack and not a summary of everything. So Google has become very good at scraping the web and then surfacing you the most relevant, specific bit of information that you, you search for. And also timely. That's, that's the big differentiator between Bing and Google is that Google has live events happening indexed into search results. Like they're, call it 30 seconds ahead of Bing. And that's highly relevant. Mm-hmm. But we've all been conditioned to search for, we search Google, we expect a link to a result, and then we trust that that page has the information that we're looking for. And, and Google's very good at putting the, the thing we're looking for at the top of their list. And maybe everyone's instinct changes so we ask the language model for the answer directly and we start trusting it and, it, and it's correct. So that very much is a danger to, to Google. And, and Apple, I, gotta, I, gotta, I mean, Apple hasn't innovated the iPhone in, in a number of years now, but I, I would think that they have to be thinking of Siri as that search product and what's a future look like when you don't need the screen, the iPhone screen, to interact with the internet. They, they have to be thinking about that. Does this mean that Google's cash flow will go from 50 to 60? They'll probably lose something if they're not the default search for on every iPhone. I'm sure. I'm sure they will. The stats are... I'm sure the stats are out there public of how many searches occur from iPhones and it it would be a a huge hit. So it's, I mean, the the economics have to work out for them to spend 15 to 15 billion to put it on the iPhone and then they're recapturing much more than that back from iPhone search. It's related. Let's switch to, we'll come back to car companies in a second, but let's switch to, uh, the Microsoft page and Microsoft, maybe maybe Bing somehow has a comeback, but I guess the main thing is, as the two of you look at Microsoft, it's this co-pilot product, which Microsoft will sell to you along with their other products. And as I recall, like in Jason, it's, I mean, it's a pretty significant addition to their 60 billion of free cash flow it comes to pass. Yeah, I mean, based on our estimates, it was like $30 billion a year in additional free cash flow, which, you know, it's less aggressive than some estimates. Right. 
Yeah, and, and everyone's talking of how much gets spent on the infrastructure to build these AI products and where's the revenue being generated out of it. And I think this will be a, a clear, large example that it's there's a market there. Because if, if you can save every employee or your company an hour of time, that 30 bucks is absolutely worth it. Well, how about the other fact is like, you don't want all your employees using the free version of Chap GPT and plugging in confidential information about your business. You're almost forced to do something. Now, whether you use OpenAI's product or whether you use Microsoft's, you have to do something. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, yeah, secrets are going out the door. Yep. And OpenAI says that they've been able to build their revenues to over a billion dollars. Just the, the for-profit part is going to be valued at. 80 or 90 billion dollars, which seems high, but this will all be done private market transactions. OpenAI started as a foundation, but then they felt they couldn't get enough money together to build their models, so they, they have a for profit OpenAI, and presumably it's a for profit OpenAI that has the revenue. But do you have any better specific information on that, Jason? No. Well, there's some theories out there. Because <laughs> if you've you've heard that, back to our Sam Maltman might be a evil genius Bond villain type guy. He's in public has said that he doesn't hold any common equity in OpenAI, which is weird. So the theory is that he actually holds the residuals in potentially like a not for profit of some sort. So, yeah, I I think that is, yeah, I I think that's common knowledge. And and startups obviously give, they give stock options to all their early employees so that they can entice people to come take a risk at a startup company. And I think instead of granting options, they did give employees these, you know, rights to the residuals on the profits. Well, no, 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 it's actually like, so any of the investors now, they're capped at a capped return model, right? right. So once everybody caps out, what's left at the end all goes to this, I'll, I'll call it a residual pool. I think that's different than what the employees have, and I think that's what Sam Altman has. Or that, you know, right. that's, that's the theory. Mm-hmm. Um, it certainly plays to our prior evil genius uh, speculations when it comes to it. Right. Right. The... Uh the cap, it seems to me, is like 30 times your money or something. Isn't it very high? It's ranged between 100 and 10, 10 and 100 times, yeah. as far as I know. Yeah. 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 And presumably, uh, IRR probably related as well. You know, if, if he's aiming to be the world's first trillionaire, this was a pretty good way to do it and not piss a ton of people off at the same time. <laughs> come across as quite altruistic if it's on a foundation. Um, Since cars are in the news with the strike and we have about four minutes left, Tesla announced that their volumes were about the same as the second quarter and still very formidable performance. Mike was mentioning to me today that BYD, a Chinese company that's about neck and neck with Tesla in terms of producing battery cars worldwide, had used Toyota as a model, and they were so successful at it 
that Toyota sent engineers to go see how BYD was copying their production techniques. But clearly, Tesla, in addition to mastering the battery and the and the electric engine and whatnot, has gotten really good at assembling these cars. So it doesn't seem as though you want to be competing with Tesla if you can avoid it. And you probably also make the case that you don't you don't want to be competing with BYD. And there's already publicity about Europeans trying to establish quotas or tariffs or whatnot against Chinese battery car imports to uh, you know allow the European car companies some room to uh, grow their own battery car businesses. Uh, any commentary, Jason? I mean, it seems to me that Tesla doesn't have dealers. Tesla's probably going to continue to drop their price to create enough demand to keep their factories operating close to capacity. And, uh, you know, if you're the, you're, you know, running Ford or running GM or, or for that matter, running Volkswagen or Toyota, Tesla and BYD are just a nightmare in terms of their being able to offer a good product for a lot less money. Absolutely. Last I saw was Tesla has 4% of the U.S. market share. And they got there in, what is it, a little over 10 years? Quite rapidly. They should be scared. They've, they've lowered the prices and they have the cheapest cars and new cars for sale in California with, with the subsidies added. And, and I think they still have more than twice the margin as, as the big threes make on their cars. It's, it's not a fair fight. One of the reasons I saw that Tesla's production numbers were flat quarter over quarter was they shut down an assembly line to upgrade. And back in their investor day in, in Q1, they gave a, a list of things that they wanted, a list of upgrades that they wanted to make to the factory. So I don't know which one they implemented, but they're all kind of bad for the competition. The, the assembly line was going to get 10% more efficient. They had another, another one that made the footprint of the factory 30% smaller so they could build more cars in the same footprint in their gigafactories. They were making the, the electric motors extremely efficient, and then they were moving from 12 volt to 48 volt within their cars. So which one they implemented, I don't know, but you know, they're, they're all kind of step changes as Tesla has been known to do that, that make their process more efficient and they'll still command higher margins with lower priced vehicles. Right. Fine. I don't know if I were if I were at any of the other car companies. I don't know. It's very, very challenging to try to try to match them because it's it's not just the batteries and the components. It it just seems that Tesla and and also BYD have gotten very good at you know turning out cars at lower cost and and quality cars and hard hard situation for the other car companies to cope with. I'm just flipping through the rest of the pages. Um, we're trying to update two pages a week. And uh, one of the recently updated pages is uh, page eight, which is Walmart against Target, Lowe's, Home Depot, and CarMax. The um, Walmart, which, you know, the FTC is about to start a suit on Amazon, they say, and but Walmart's a formidable competitor. 
and does have free cash flow, does have a pretty strong balance sheet. But, you know, it's a very large multiple. I mean, it's 30 times, you know, enterprise value times free cash flow. And as compared to Lowe's and Home Depot, who, you know, have a better recent record in terms of generating free cash flow, and they're both at, you know, 14, 15 times free cash flow. So definitely is a premium in Walmart. An interesting question is, in energy, what is the times free cash flow? And when you look, and this would be page nine, Exxon, Chevron, so forth, are around 10 times free cash flow. You turn to the midstream companies, which are page 10, they tend to be somewhat higher, but kind of, you know, not probably a bit on the overvalued side. Uh, you turn to uh, page 11, which is four upstream oil companies. Again, you see, you know, at current oil pricing or oil pricing this year, which is probably going to average around 80, 10, 11 times free cash flow. Um, when you get to the gas companies, page 13, or excuse me, page 12, you see them trading around 15 times. I think what's happening there is that they're looking at next year's gas prices. So they're looking at 350 versus three. And just to take an example, I haven't done this calculation on all of them, but Antero produces about a trillion two per year. So 50 cents is another 500 million of cash flow. So your free cash flow at 600 million would almost double with that extra 50 cents. So there's a huge amount of uh, leverage there. So for that, you get you know five multiple points, I guess. The financial institutions, page 13, all around 10 times. You get to the manufacturing companies, page 14. You know, there there are some that are more than 15 times there. Uh, these are all pretty good companies. You get to uh, the healthcare stocks. I mean, Pfizer being a very large one. And, of course, with free cash flow for, you know, we had benefit enormously from the COVID vaccines. But generally, these companies are in the 20 times range. I uh, updated the uh, restaurant stocks. Interestingly enough, the restaurant stocks are all in the 30 times range. I'm not sure I see the justification for that. But one of the advantages of keeping the 20 pages close at hand, if you're involved in business or businesses you own and you're trying to figure out, you know, what a reasonable times free cash flow multiple is, you know, that these, the, all the companies in those 20 pages, almost all the companies have free cash flow. It's amazing how here the free cash flow uh, can be. And it's just a lesson that valuations are pretty high. And one of the things we worry about is if the real interest rate, in other words, the interest rate um, uh, adjusted for inflation. So, in other words, if the five year bond, if the 10 year bond is 5% and the inflation expectation for 10 years is 2.5%, which I think is about right. That's two and a half points of real interest rate. We haven't had real interest rate since 0809. For the longest time, we had negative real interest rate. So these valuations in 2030 times free cash flow, they're subject to getting adjusted down in the event that those those real interest rates stay fairly high. But to go back to what we were talking about from uh, early in the uh, conversation today, those high real interest rates 
may not be sustainable if the Fed has to go to the rescue of the repo market or, or, or the government bond market or the capital markets in general. So with that as a final thought, uh, everyone stay healthy and be well. And talk next Wednesday. Take care. The views expressed on this podcast are the host alone and do not constitute an offer to sell or a recommendation to purchase or a solicitation of an offer to buy, any security nor a recommendation for any investment product or service. While certain information contained herein has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, neither the host nor any of their employers or their affiliates have independently verified this information and its accuracy and completeness cannot be guaranteed. Accordingly, no representation or warranty expressed or implied is made as to and no reliance should be placed on the fairness, accuracy, timeliness, or completeness of this information. The hosts and all employers and their affiliated persons assume no liability for this information and no obligation to update the information or analysis contained herein in the future and may or may not hold positions in the securities mentioned. 